Did anyone else notice that I forgot to ask Dr. Van Rieken the ridiculous question? <laughs> yeah, I guess I was just so excited to have her on the podcast. I I completely left my brain. Um, we had slid down some alleys about travel and she kept asking me questions and it was almost as if it was her podcast and I was the guest. <laughs> she took over my podcast. <laughs> Anyways, for this episode, uh, we continue uh, to talk about my book topic, actually. She was very interested in discussing this the first time we met. And I wanted you all to hear her thoughts on loving and relating in a polarized world and her hopes of where TCKs fit in solving the problem. Our discussion last summer prompted me to promote the synergy we have in the intercultural space to find common ground. I love what she has to say. Are you living or coming from a multicultural or cross-cultural journey in this life? Have you lived abroad for an extended amount of time? Have you married into another culture or are a product of a bicultural relationship? Hello, I'm Mike Sullivan and this is my TCK podcast where we answer ridiculous questions like, where are you from? So I initially wrote you, I said, hey, I'm writing a book called Building Bridges, Can We Love and Relate in a Polarized World? And you seem pretty excited about that and solving that, especially from the perspective of TCKs. Uh, why why does that resonate with you, or why why did that energize you in in a way? Because I think that's the question our world is facing right now. Mm. And I think when I started doing the TCK work, I had great hopes that it's kind of transracial trans ethnicity, transnational, you know, it, TCKs are from many places. Mm -hmm. And we connect on this topic of growing up with high mobility in different cultural worlds because we are people and people need relationships. So when we move, our relationships are broken and we feel it because we're people and we, mm -hmm. you know, can be creative in our experiences because we're creative people. And so, they're the commonality of being human, I think, in our experience is pretty evident because there's so many differences from what other people would see mm -hmm. and how people relate when they do um, include, you know, the inclusion programs or the diversity programs. Mm -hmm. So many of these things are what they call diversity, but in this experience, because we share an experience, we we connect with each other. Mm -hmm. So I guess there was sort of this vague hope that as people began to know each other in this wider way, our community would be an example, but also, you know, you'd be inviting people to share with the whole point that um, we can transcend these differences as humans and we can relate, we can enjoy, we can have fun. And it feels like it's gone the other way mm -hmm. that as people are, moving into this globalized world rather than embracing the new things that are happening and the 
novelty, may I say. I mean, you know, I like food that I don't know about. I may not like it all by night, taste it, but it's a lot of fun to try because it's interesting and it's, you know, things like that. So instead of moving closer, it's like, the basic identity question, one of our challenges is identity because we're not sure who we are when we've been many places. Mm-hmm. And it's like the whole world went into an identity crisis. Yeah. And the only way that some people know to deal with identity is that I'm not you. It's a negative identity. I'm not you. And I've seen TCKs do that when they go back to their uh, passport countries right. and people expect them to be like that. They take a negative identity and like, well, I'm not you, and I'm going to let you know I'm not you before mm. you let me know I'm not you. Yeah. And they spend their whole life proving what they're not, but they never necessarily go out to find out who they are. And that's what I'm seeing in the world, that an awful lot of people in places, including in my own country, can only define themselves by who they're not. Yeah. And that's a pretty negative place to be. And so... They think they're embracing who they are, but they really aren't. They're getting close, more close all the time mm-hmm. to a specific window or box or something and shutting everybody else out. Yeah. And when we do that as humans, we lose. Yeah. And so that's why I saw your title, Building Bridges, and can we, you know, get across our differences? I thought I'd like to hear how you think that can happen. Yeah. So that's... That's one of my, that was my interest. It still is. Yeah. How do we change what's happening? How can we change? Can we change it? Yeah. That's the question. <laughs> I, I, it's interesting journey with everything, every aspect of the book, the cover, the chapters, the, it's been a wonderful journey, a transformative journey in my own life, even from the time that I met you and talked to you. There's been two trains kind of going along, right? Spin my book. The, the the book and then the the podcast and keeping up with and getting involved in the whole TCK universe and it's ironic that marketing advice actually brought me to this point because what it has mm-hmm. done is actually helped me discover who I am as a person you know and where I belong and so that's just been a really it's been a powerful journey in that regard. Um, thank you for being interested in, in the book and the, in the, that, and I, I certainly am concerned about where we're headed and frustrated as well. Well, it seems so unnecessary. That's the problem. Yeah, <laughs> of course. Like I, I mean, said, I, there's one part of me understands why people are afraid because it's unknown, mm. but I think what I guess I had hoped when all this began with the TCK stuff was that we could, like I said before, be an example Mm. that you could mix and match across cultures Mm. with different backgrounds, but you can mix and match as human beings. Yeah. And I think if there's anything that's a gift of my life, that's the gift Mm. is that from my earliest childhood, I played with people of different backgrounds, different colors, Mm. different, uh, socioeconomic groups. Yeah. And, um, you know, some were children of the British colonialists. Some were my father's students. Some were your village kids. You know, they were, Mm. there was a connection that was based on, you know, when you're kids, you all want to win the game, right? Mm. 
So if you're playing soccer, it doesn't matter where you're coming from. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're going to play and be a team, and mm-hmm. everybody's going to try and win. And if you yeah. go to somebody's home, they have to eat. And so they're eating two of me out, and so you can try some. Yeah. And uh, if they come to my house, they can try, you know, whatever my mother has fixed for that day and so forth. That, to me, was what I saw as a great hope mm. and a great gift that I'd like to share for my life. I think I just really, really think it's fun. Mm-hmm. And so when I meet people that it's only scary, I have to realize, instead of just being angry at them, I think I finally had to realize they didn't grow up the way I did. Mm-hmm. And so I don't, I maybe don't understand why what I see is so positive is so scary to them. And I need to listen, well, why is it scary? You know, there's a reason they're afraid. So yeah. in the beginning, it was like, oh, you know, I don't understand. I don't know why you should be afraid. There's nothing to be afraid of. But when you listen, you can at least see what the fears are, whether you agree with them or not. That's part of the understanding is it's not a one-way street. Right. I need to also try understand that people did not grow up my way. And mm. so I have a worldview based on my experiences and they mm-hmm. have a worldview based on their experiences. Yeah. So what are those two worldviews? And is there a way to, if not anything else, to at least understand each other so that we're not mad? I think it it is totally possible. And one of the examples was, I mean, my, my mother came from a very racist part of Western New, North New Jersey. And uh, I mean, the, the Ku Klux Klan was quite famous in that area where she grew up. In fact, even I think her great grandfather was a Ku Klux Klan member. I feel as a TCK, it's an easier transition for me to make to be involved with people who are different than me, just based on you know my TCK experience and et cetera. But for my parents, the boldness and courage for them to give up everything and then travel halfway around the world, you know, to experience a new life yep. and a new culture is, is a tremendous amount of courage. People can do it. I mean, in a sense, my parents are kind of guilty of bringing that about, you know, as kind of a status quo for me and my sister, right? So it's not as if people who grew up in one culture are completely unable to, but they they really do have to have some courage or incentive to do it. That's that's a challenge, right? It's at the end of the day, it's their decision, you know. Yes, but I, I think also each of us have to look at our own story because I always mm. thought, well, I um, was very open and all that kind of stuff. And then I don't know if you've interviewed Danao Tanu yet, but she did her PhD in the Asian experience. Uh-huh. And she came to me after some conference and she said, you know, you all say that one of your characteristics is that you understand cultures and you're open and all that. She says, but I went to an international school, and I had to be Western to fit in. So during the day, I was Mm. Western. 
Yeah. And nobody knew who I was because when I went home at night, I had to be Asian. And if I was Western at home, that wasn't going to go too well. Right. And that she developed an internalized racism against herself. So she started mm. the TCKs of Asia. And if you haven't interviewed them, you really should talk to those people because they're working with the TCK phase two is what mm. I call it. And yeah. um, so that was an eye-opening thing for me. And mm-hmm. then all the talk about power and privilege, mm-hmm. you know, I was a minority when I grew up in Nigeria, but I was a privileged minority. There's no question. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, my dad was a school principal, which gives you a certain status, but also being me white too. and being yeah. uh, certain and having access to, I mean, I was the one flying in and out. I had a bed at night, you know, so many of my people I met, you know, were living in very different socioeconomic. And we weren't rich because when your parents are with a mission, mm-hmm. It's not about being rich compared to other maybe expats or people back in the States, but certainly compared to the local economy at that mm. particular point in life. Yeah. That was a long time ago. But, you know, at that point, certainly I had more toys. Mm-hmm. I had more, uh, you know, just privilege was mine. And, and mm. I never thought about it. I just took it for granted, I guess. And so I think I also have to go back and say, all right, look at your life. And you may think that you're so global, but actually, Mm. did you understand fully what you were, what your friends were going through? Because Mm -hmm. they operated in my world. I had the ball for soccer, right? Yeah. So uh, they were operating in my world generally. Mm-hmm. Now, I went to the villages. I love to go to the villages. and things. I like to go visit. But when uh, some people who, who lived more remotely would invite me to come visit for a few days, I found yeah. I really didn't like kerosene lamps to read by. And I didn't like not having lots of water. You know, that it was a mm-hmm. different experience to live. So I, I have to say, I'm not as global as I think either. I enjoy culture. Right. I enjoy other people. But, you know... I have my own framework and I have to realize that I see it through the eyes of, you know, I spoke English, which is a status language. They tell me. That's right. And some of the people who are TCKs went to countries that they learned other languages, but they didn't learn English maybe. And so that uh, could color how their experience is interpreted. Hmm. I was in, I know you teach English. Some of your life. Yeah. The first time I went to, well, the only time I went to Russia, it was the first time I was in an international school where they had kids taking English as, as the second language or the an additional mm-hmm. language. And I was so surprised. And I thought, why am I surprised? And I thought, well, because in my time in, in history, the kids who would go to international school would probably already speak English because... Most of the people who were doing global mobility for a career, and not immigration, but, you know, because mm-hmm. they were going with a corporation or company or something, would speak English to begin with. Or they had a German school or they had a Japanese school or something. Right. But uh, the thing that was particularly interesting to me was the they had um, some Korean students and the Korean parents had learned Russian to mm. work there. And the American teachers had also studied Russian to be there. So 
here they are in an international school, but the parents and the teachers are talking to each other in Russian. I thought, well, now that's a new one. That is, that's very fascinating. It was just like, okay, my mind is a little bit, you know, blown here. Yeah. But you know, the most interesting thing about that trip, Mike, was that there was a man who was from Korea who was there trying to help the Korean kids make those adjustments. I mean, he was that was kind of his job in the school. And so he came to all the sessions I did for parents and teachers and so forth. And he was always very polite, very kind, just but kind of quiet. And we didn't have big um, conversations or something. And then they asked me to do something for the Korean parents, and he would be the translator. Mm-hmm. So when they had that night, and he came with his Korean outfit on, speaking his language, his personality was completely different. He was outgoing. He was funny. The people were, you know, friendly. I was the one that who was sort of going like, oh, hi, having no way to really connect. And when I was speaking, and then he was translating, and people were laughing And all these things, I thought, I wonder what he's saying, because I didn't think I was that funny. And so it was an interesting thing for me to realize (laughs) when you switch roles, and I don't know the culture, you know. uh, Mm -hmm. So I'm sort of the stranger just looking on, looking a little bit dumb or just out of it. And they're having a ball because they're in their language, they're in their environment, they're, you know, they're, they're comfortable. And so this topic you know, could be shared that way. But it was just, it was an interesting, again, moment. Whenever I have that moment of surprise or discomfort or whatever it is, I think there's something to learn here. This is the second time. Actually, this is really good because I I did talk to Dr. Rachel Kaysen about the same issue as well, just about language imperialism and our positions of privilege having grown up in certain places and just what that all means exactly and i'm just extremely thankful about you know the path that my life has gone Uh, i would say my wife has provided me with the most education about that my privilege (laughs) my wife for sure uh marrying somebody from the jungles of cebu in the philippines who grew up impoverished and without opportunities and of course you know i won't spoil alert for my book but uh, i do open up and tell the full story about how we met and having that education in a time of my life where yeah i i could just assume that we as kcks can bridge all those 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 gaps when the reality is that we didn't experience what it's like to be from a particular group that is held down we didn't experience that because of being Americans or being white or speaking English. Mm-hmm. So it's very important for us to recognize those things on so many levels. That is part of, right. unfortunately, that is part of the polarizing issue is that some people on one camp feel that those things are threatened. Absolutely. Everybody wants their kids to be safe. Right. Everybody wants kids to have food. Everybody yeah. wants their kids to have a chance. That's right. And so sometimes when we're angry at, quote, unquote, the other, mm-hmm. we honestly do forget there's no reason in the world but grace that we have the privileges we have. I mean, 
Yeah. You know, it's um, one of the mysteries of life for me. Seeing other people as humans, because like I say, you know, everybody wants to win. But there was a situation recently that somebody told me something I had done years ago that I don't remember, but it was when he was a little kid. We were in Liberia as adults, but I went over to visit their family and recognized they were all sleeping on the, um, or he was sleeping on the floor on the ground on cardboard. Mm -hmm. Now, this is not a big deal, but I think it occurred to me, it must have occurred to me because I don't remember doing this. He, He said I went and bought mattress. Well, it's probably just one of those sponge little mattresses. It's not like a big mattress Mm -hmm. and so forth. But he said it was the first time in my life that I felt loved. I didn't have to sleep on the ground. Now, I'm not saying that to put myself up at all. What I'm saying is that because of my life, when I see a little kid in that way, I think he's no more comfortable than I am Mm -hmm. sleeping on the ground. He might be used to it, You can say people Mm. are used to it. But apparently, you know, it dawned on me that this wasn't as easy for him as it would have been. I mean, it was as hard for him as it would have been for me. So that's not about celebrating myself. That's the kind of thing I think that when you've grown up with people of all sorts of backgrounds, it's maybe easier to see them as humans than it is if they're completely other. I don't know. Yeah. I would say that was something that came out of my life. And and mm-hmm. also my father was a teacher who said, don't ever ask a local citizen to do something that you wouldn't do yourself because people are people. Mm. So if you don't want to do it, don't ask somebody else to do it. Can you tell me a little bit about SPAN? Yes, I'd be happy to. Sure, yeah. I, I'm, and I, I, you mentioned it a little bit at the beginning of the recording, but what is it's safe passage across networks? Yes, SPAN is, as you just said, safe passage across networks. Doug Ota is the founder, mm. and the idea of SPAN is to help schools establish strong transition programs in each school, uh, particularly right now they're emphasizing international schools, but places where there's this high mobility. It is a factor that's becoming more and more evident with all the neuroscience that when kids move, it affects their educational process as well as their psychological and emotional process because they're finding out with the, all the neurons and all these things that the chemicals that would go for learning are instead going for trying to figure out the stress of how do I fit in and those mm-hmm. kind of things. Yeah. Doug Otto was a guidance counselor. He was a counselor at the American School of The Hague. I went there a whole bunch of years ago, um, and somebody just had gotten me a gig there, but they were trying to develop in their school a transition program where mm-hmm. they would use students to welcome the new ones and they would say goodbye well and all that. So um, we have a fabulous night there because he had the students welcome me. And it was, that's a long story, but I got to know Doug there. And through the years, uh, as he was developing this program, people would come and they would try to learn how they could do it for their school. 
the problem was that maybe in American School of the Hague, they say goodbye well, they do all the right things. But if they go to another school that doesn't do anything with transition, it's kind of lost because nobody's mm. receiving them well. So his vision was if they could establish sort of a certifiable program that schools could really develop that so that whichever school you left, you would, if you said a good goodbye here, you could say a good hello there and vice versa. So they have been developing and Doug went on to do his PhD work. He just finished in attachment for school kids in the international schools. What does this do to your attachment factors when you're always leaving and always coming? And he's just uh, going to defend his PhD, but uh, in a few months, but he's really found some interesting things, even how strong the school is as an attachment figure for many kids in mm-hmm. mobility, you know, and it's not just the kids who are moving, it's the stairs. What does it do for the stairs when the community around them is always moving? So this is a really big factor in today's globalizing world, but it's the beginning right now is the programs are starting for international schools. I think they should come, you know, incorporations and all and around that. So they've developed uh, seven laws of transition course. They do, they teach online. And their desire is that you would have maybe three, four people from a school or could be a corporation or whatever who would come together and take the course so that that little cohort could begin to form for their place what a, a program would be. Because if it's just one person, the minute that person goes, then it's all finished. So the idea is how do you establish as part of the core curriculum, as part of the core um, culture of a school that we do transitions well. Mm-hmm. Then they also have okay. Span Nest, which is a monthly program for people who are doing the programs because Doug Otis' belief is the transition team also needs transition care because, you know, you just can't just give. So every month they have the Span Nest on the first Thursday of the month. And educators come together and they maybe share a topic. They get in small groups and share how they're doing it and what the frustrations are, what the help is. And so it's, it's a, basically it's a program designed to do transitions well. And it actually stemmed out of FIGT, which is why I'm so happy. Because, um, again, I think Families of Global Transition has been like a hub where people – of like interest and they find each other and all these people who care about these things kind of come together and it's like, Oh, we could do something about that. And that's, you know, how it started. So their first meeting was a pre-conference at a families of global transition. And so people could come to both. And then, you know, as things do, it spins off, which is how it should be because then it's its own focus and other people maybe go into Either some one woman did podcasts on reentry and different things, but span is, um, it's a hugely needed thing. But I think what's also to me exciting, I'm on the board, so I guess that's itself I should disclaim. But they become the organizations that certify international schools have also recognized now one of the things they check off when they certify is, does the school have a transition program? 
because they're seeing how desperately needed this is for the students. And so it's kind of a timely match that CIS um, has made this as part of requirements for being okay. certified or what you call it when they do schools. Um, and so SPAN is offering the kind of programs to really help schools and the people who work there um, understand what it's about, but also understand functionally how do we implement it. So I just feel like it's a really, really, it's a really important. Doug's book is called Safe Passage. And so if anybody's interested, you can buy the book. And he sort of spells out the program. And, of course, it's growing since then. But it's very concrete um, how-to steps and why. Why it's important. And uh, so I think that it's, uh, this is, again, another when I say phase two, uh, it's next generation, this generation after me. And I guess what you alluded to before is what I feel very strongly now, that there's so much that's developed. Nobody, no one person can do it, but each person has their little piece of saying, wow, we, we got the basics. Now what do we do? Mm. One thing I should say that I always love is when people add to what we know already. When... I read a book or just hear a program and it's just sort of reiterating the same. It's like, that's kind of boring. You can just read my book. That's there. But when people take it and say, okay, mobility, what does that do? And then they put it with the science. Okay. They're finding out all this about the vincola and all that sort of stuff. And wow, it's really big. It's really, it's impacting on a provable way, not just because I'm saying, well, I noticed it, but they're saying, no, there's real neuroscience behind this. And then they do something. They're making a program. I mean, to me now, that's exciting. Then I feel like my life work matters because it's not just theory. It's, it's actually changing lives. <laughs>